0: Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We praise the true and living God for allowing us to be part of this, his ministry, and pray that he will be with you and us tonight. A special shout-out, haven't done shout-outs in years, to our viewers in Sweden tonight. Actually, 4 a.m. in the morning there, but we do have some people who are watching at this time. Can you name Smith's book? Here you go. Here's some clues. Can you name this Smith's book? You ready? Uh, It speaks of a lost book of God, a voice from the dust come out of the ground to convince Indians of their true heritage and to bring them back to God. Clue number two, the original inhabitants of the new world were from the 10 Jewish tribes of Israel who fled to Jerusalem just before its destruction in 600 BC. Clue number three, God led these Israelites to land a promise in the Americas where they followed the law of Moses. Number four, they brought two stones with them called the Urim and Thummim with precious breastplate of God combined. Number five, the Israelites filled all the land from sea to sea where no man had been. Six, the Israelites spoke Hebrew, but later became American Indians. Seven, quotes heavily from Isaiah's prophecy, word for word from the Bible. Eight, the Jewish Indians split the civilized people and savage people. Nine, the civilization had, the civilized people had written records, fine art and medicine used iron and metals, developed a Republican government, while the uncivilized were idle and lazy and lived by hunting. Ten, the wicked Jewish American Indians had idolatry and human sacrifices, and national uh, wars built large military fortresses and linked cities with watchtowers. Twelve, Jesus came to the uh, Aztec, came as the Aztec god Quetzalcoatl, and preached in the New World. The savage Indians became more powerful and fought the civilized. These wars resulted in the savage Indians wiping out the faithful Indians. In the future, the lost tribes of Israel are gonna be restored and America will be occupied by a modern God-fearing nation. This book appeals to the United States to teach Indians that they are the remnant of Israel. And the last faithful chief, a high priest of God, buries this book for future discovery. Now, here's the question. What Smith book am I talking about? Ethan Smith. There you go. Ethan Smith is right from our fine friend, Reed not joseph smith's book of mormon ethan smith's view of the hebrews a fictional story published in 1823 republished in 1825 ethan smith was close friends with oliver Cowdery's family he was the pastor of the church oliver Cowdery grew up in and i think that in and of itself speaks volumes on the so-called book of scripture called the book of mormon i guess the ancestors of Joseph Smith are gonna be having a family get-together this coming month of August. According to an article in the Deseret News, July 21st, it's potentially a record-breaking reunion, so record-breaking that the organizers of the family gathering have humbly, humbly already contacted Guinness, and that's not the beer company, Guinness Book of World Records, and they want to get certification that they are going to be part of the largest family reunion on earth in the name of joseph smith according to the article those who attend are going to have all sorts of fun including a five miracle 5k miracle run they're calling it and it's going to be de- it's uh, one of joseph smith's descendants said it's in honor of the first miracle of the restored church of mormonism What are they talking about? Uh, When Joseph Smith was six or seven years of age, he caught a disease, it settled in his uh, leg, Uh, salmonella virus settled in his leg, and typically they amputate legs back in the day for that, but a daring uh, Dartmouth school medical doctor came and he did a number of gruesome, very gruesome cuttings on his leg to remove the infected bone, and it saved his leg from amputation. The story's true. Uh, I would suppose we might view all hearings as a miracle. This was a healing uh, by a doctor's hand, uh, God guiding, I think. But in honor of the fact they are ha- uh, Smith survived with a limp, but legs still attached, so they're holding, in memory of that, a 5K run. Um, uh, they call it the first miracle of the restoration and they're holding that 5K run to do it. Uh, Taking it up a notch, what's really important is an apostle of the Mormon church, Ballard, is gonna show up and he is gonna grant everybody who participates a medal around the neck for running in the race. Uh, Just as a matter of history to let you know, in a lost gospel, the Gospel of Simeon, contains a story about a family reunion that was held in the early church in honor of Stephen who was stoned to death Really, I'm telling you the truth. I guess Stephen's relatives far and wide gathered together on the east side of the Mount of Olives and they threw unleavened bread balls at him to symbolize what, how they killed Stephen. And, uh, and then afterward, Peter even showed up and he gave everybody there who participated a medal because that's what apostles do, you know. Um, <laughs> I hope people aren't taking me seriously on this. The restored church of Jesus Christ where the apostles spend their time giving medals to people who do a 5K run. I don't know, maybe i am lost something. Maybe I don't know what Christianity is about. Another article in the Deseret's News uh, front page are some upcoming things that are happening and uh, about conferences, fairs, and Sunstone. You've probably heard about all those. We're gonna give you further reports on that uh, later on. Let me take a minute and address something about knowing truth. The big word for understanding truth, how we know truth, is called epistemology. It's a study of how we know something. Maybe not even truth, but how we know. And if you know, then it's true. So it is kind of the study of truth. But epistemology. Uh, You know that the LDS missionaries, when they knock on doors, they say, you know, will you read the Book of Mormon, and will you pray, and does God touch your heart? Do you feel this? Do you feel the Holy Spirit? Can you feel? It's all about feeling, feeling, feeling. I was recently exposed to a montage of uh, things from different artistic representations through different mediums, film, uh, uh, periodicals, and music. And um, repeatedly, in each of these representation, I noticed this theme, which is why I'm bringing it up now. There's an appeal in all of those mediums to feeling. How did the film make you feel? the question was asked. How did uh, you, uh, how did the feelings come about when you read the article that was describing lost children? How did you feel about that? And then James Hetfield from Metallica, I watched several clips from him speaking to uh, his vast audience and before and after every song saying, how do you feel? Do you feel good? Don't you feel good? How are you feeling right now? Everything was an appeal to how you feel, okay? Go with me back to the Garden of Eden for a second, where Adam and Eve were told by God, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In the day that you do, you will surely die, period. He doesn't say, it was an instruction from God. He doesn't say, how do you feel about it? He didn't say, now go and pray and see if you feel good about those instructions I've given you. It's simply the instruction was given, it was clear, it was founded on their ability to think and reason and choose to follow or not. And they had the word that was given to them. Don't do this, okay? Nothing about do you feel good about doing it or does it feel right? Or does the truth come through this way? Just this is what I say, you choose how you're gonna follow it. Eve's justification for eating the fruit, however, is interesting because in it we have some sensory uh, uh, appeal. She says in Genesis 3, 6, or it says, and when the woman saw, that the tree was good for food. She had some, some desires toward that. And a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit thereof and did eat and it gave to her husband with her and he did eat. Our senses, our feelings, how we are driven or pulled towards something will deceive us. Almost everything that a person chooses to do that is against God, we do it because it feels right because it feels good, because it, it, it makes some kind of sense to our uh, carnal mind. Uh, I mean, it feels good to fornicate. That's why people fornicate. Uh, it feels good to commit adultery. That's why the sin happens. So feeling good is not the, the way we test to see if something is true or not. Murder must feel good in some sense to most murderers and, and as do all sins of the flesh but because something feels good is not the way we can determine truth. This is the fallacy that Mormons have perpetrated upon the people who convert. They say, with these good-looking missionaries, reading scripture that's pretty much from the Bible, how do you feel when you read that? I feel really nice. That's the Holy Spirit telling you that Joseph Smith was true. And they use that over and over again, entirely outside of what the Bible says. Had Eve stuck to what was written, what was said, and forgot about what she felt, just said, well, wait a minute, this is what was said, we'd be in an entirely different picture. And the same is with us when it comes to sin. It's, it's our sin nature that appeals to the feelings and emotions. It is not our spirit nature that does. Our spirit nature, it responds, sometimes those things are part of it, but it responds to what God has said, what is written, and what we choose to do with that, okay? Before we get on to our subject tonight, I wanna to get back to doing a segment that we used to go, do when we were on television here in, locally in Utah, and we call it From the Word, so here we go.
1: And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see, and I saw, and behold,
2: a white horse.
0: Okay, for all you viewing audience out there, whoever can call in first and tell us who that was reading that passage of scripture gets a full lunch at Taco Bell with me someday. (laughs) Uh, Anyway. (laughs) Right, who was it who read that? Tell us. Let's uh, go into from the word. In John three fourteen. Jesus said to a guy named Nicodemus who came to him by night, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up, and whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Did you read what Jesus said? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. To any biblical Christian, salvation, exaltation, eternal life, whatever you want to call it, is all based on faith in the work, finished work of Jesus Christ. But the LDS, who insist on being called Christian, present an altogether different, perspective of what it means to be saved and they give you a couple of definitions that are paradoxically tough to reconcile first they teach that salvation being saved is a free gift you'll hear them say that salvation being saved is a free gift and what they're referring to in this sense is resurrection of all people Jesus came, he overcame physical death because of that. Anybody who is on this earth gets the free gift of resurrection and they'll refer to that as salvation. So that's the first definition. Where people go as resurrected beings is based on their works. And this is the second way the LDS define salvation or being saved. The first is resurrection. The second one is uh, where you go once you're resurrected. This is why one of their articles of faith says, we believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. In my collection of Mormon propaganda, I have an LDS tract, it's called The Purpose of Life, uh, dated 1983. It says, quote, you may earn salvation through Christ, period. That is the LDS, the second definition of salvation, that you earn it. What they mean by that is you have a life, you choose to follow Christ, you do everything you possibly can to get your life in perfect shape. You turn from sin, you repent when you don't, you climb the ladder, you climb the ladder closer and closer to heaven. And there's all kinds of different ways the LDS will describe it but they'll say, you do all you can to get as high on that ladder as possible, and then at death, God, by virtue of Jesus Christ's atonement, reaches down and he says, I'll make up the difference. That is the LDS definition of salvation in the second sense. You have to do all you can, and he reaches down and pulls you up. What that's called is bondage. It's called being on a hamster wheel of endlessly trying to prove yourself and failing and being under this horrible rock of of guilt. This is why the Book of Mormon says in 2 Nephi 25, 23, for we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all that we can do. So that takes the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Bible and it alters it and it puts the ball in your court that you have to do. And then, of course, the LDS Church tells you what you have to do, all that you have to do. You got to pay your tithe. You got to go to the temple. You got to keep the Sabbath day holy. You got to keep your hair trimmed. You got to wear a white shirt. You got to hold family home evening. You got to go to seminary. I mean, It's endless. A good friend, Jed, he said, there's a uh, television pastor on TV here the other day, and he said on the air, I don't really care about the Mormons. And, and, and Jed was having a conversation with him, and Jed said, you must not have any family that are LDS. And he said, oh, yeah, that's true. Family or friends, because I'm gonna tell you something, when you do, you have a burden for them because they're under this bondage of trying to merit and earn their own salvation, and it's a horrible sight. I prefer to like what... The Bible says about salvation. Nicodemus, uh, Jesus said, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I like what Paul says in Romans 10 9 that if thou shalt confess with the mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in the heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You don't do that for resurrection, save salvation. Soder. And then what it says in Ephesians 2.8, for by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And I especially enjoy what it says in Romans 11.6, listen to this. And if by grace, then it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. It's kind of like the Mormons are saying, uh, you can sort of be pregnant. You either are or you aren't. You either are saved by his grace or you are saved by your works. It's gonna be one of the other Paul says here. The LDS say, well, you gotta climb that ladder, that's a work, you gotta struggle and do everything, and then grace comes in. That is not the biblical definition of it. Anyone, listen, if that's you watching in the archives, watching around the US or the world right now, Anyone can be free, saved, headed to eternal life in and through the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Go to him directly, ask him to reveal his truth to you. If you're LDS, abandon ship and get into a relationship. Like any con, it over promises, it complicates matters, and then it it under um, delivers. With that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we seek you, love you, and need you. We pray for our volunteers and staff, we pray for the people here in our audience locally, and then all the viewers who tune in through YouTube or the archives, the NRB network, or streaming video throughout the world. We love you and need you, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, religion is religion, is religion. They all run off some sort of combination of God being involved, and then the input and influence of men and women, and then people seeking to relate to the eternal truths that are kind of being propagated and mixed up in the whole thing. Some are strict in their demands. Others are loose. Some are materially wealthy. Others are dirt poor. From what I can tell, most seek to get human beings to improve in their life in the way they relate to each other, in the way that they see God. They, most of them serve, if not all, except maybe the Church of Satan and some other ones. Uh, you know, they, they teach to serve and to forgive and to love. Um, we would be in denial as Christians if we suggested otherwise. Admittedly, I have never been to an LDS sacrament meeting or Sunday school or even priesthood meeting where anything was ever taught that was not good to do. They teach you to do good, probably because you got to climb that ladder. But still, they're teaching good principles and how to live. Uh, do good to your neighbor. I imagine the same situation will be found at most churches, most Hindus, most Islamic gatherings. You know, traditional Islamic gatherings. Most of these places are all teaching. Listen, uh, do your best. Try to love the golden rule type of thing. Looking at the organized side of religion and uh, standards of behavior, there aren't many differences between what Mormons teach and represent and do and Christian denominations and non-denominations. We pretty much are sane to do the same type of things. The foundational doctrines undergirding the faiths are certainly different. And uh, these honestly serve as drivers behind everything that is taught, and ultimately we'll get to that, but for those, LDS people who don't know or understand the underlying doctrines, pretty much they go to church like a Christian who doesn't know the Bible goes to church and they hear you should live a good life and you should try to do well with your neighbor and uh, you know, don't do this and don't do that. And they leave and they think that, well, yeah, we must be Christian. Let me take you through some of the basic non-denom and denominational uh, things Christi- Christianity has in common with Mormonism. First, there's general lifestyle. We talked about this before, but whether you're LDS or Christian, the general idea is believers and followers ought to pursue what is deemed a good or clean or holy life. Uh, yes, the LDS forbids smoking and drinking alcohol and coffee and tea, but there are a number of large Christian denominations that say don't do the same things. Uh, where I was trained, Calvary Chapel, you signed an agreement that you would not drink alcohol. I mean, there are places that have health codes, churches that have them. They're not different. Most most Christians look down on uh, smoking and things. Coffee and tea are a little extreme. You don't see that too often. But, you know, there's health codes within most of them. Uh, Having a heart toward the struggling, serving the poor, providing for their own, pretty much have the same emphasis in Mormonism as it does in Christianity, except Mormonism probably executes everything a little bit better than Christianity as a whole organizationally, they know how to get it done better than we do because of the organizational structure, which is of man, it is of man, completely. Uh, And then, but you know, we do have to admit the Catholics, in terms of quantity of uh, humanitarian aid, they blow the doors off all of us combined. If you really, I mean, you gotta look at the hospitals, the colleges, the scientific discoveries, uh, the money they have poured into humanistic needs, The Catholics beat us to shame. Sorry, Mormons and Christians. The Catholics have outdone us in that department. Uh, There are Sabbatarian Christian churches like the LDS. Unfortunately, most Christian churches will use the term tithe upon their congregates. The LDS use the term tithe upon their members. Um, uh, There's those commonalities. Memberships, some churches have memberships. You gotta be a member of their church. You're baptized as a member of their church and they won't recognize other baptisms or they'll recognize some. Mormons are different, they recognize no other sacraments of any other church but their own, but they still have memberships. Excommunications, Uh, many churches do excommunications, Mormons included. How about rites and rituals? The LDS have many more than typical Christian churches, but you know, uh, they. Christian churches participate in rituals. Go to a good Lutheran church that teaches the core values of, of uh, Christ as one, and you'll see them stand and sit and stand and sit and read and kneel and, and partake of their, uh, their uh, sacrament or their communion in a certain ritualistic way. It's religion. Uh, not far apart in this stuff, folks, and in terms of individual attitudes, there will forever be Mormons in the local wards and stakes who think they are better than everybody else, and there will forever be people in Christian churches who think they're better than everybody else. I mean, people are people. Religion is religion. Uh, It it doesn't really work out. Every religious organization has a few people who do everything. It's like the 10% do everything that needs to be done, and then 90% of people who do nothing. Mormonism, it might be a little higher. They might get like a 35% ratio, but still, they got probably a good uh, uh, 45% who do nothing or whatever it might be. Most devout members in any church think their church is the best. You think the church I go to, if you're really devout to it, it's it's the best church out there. Mormons think that too. Catholics think Catholicism is the best. Lutherans think, uh, Lutheranism is the best. Calvary chapels are ardent Calvary chapel fans, you know? You, you, You just do that. Humans do that kind of thing. And in Mormonism, there's strong competition between the local wards. Sometimes they hate each other, and there's strong competition between the stakes. In Christianity, there's churches in the local communities who can't stand each other too, unfortunately. Church leadership is typically universal in attitude and character. There are Mormon bishops who are phenomenal guys, great guys, great men who you love to death, and there are Mormon bishops who should be shot. And, and you go to a Christian church, there are pastors who are phenomenal men of faith who love people and serve, and there are pastors who should be running casinos instead of churches, you know? And it's just, that's the human nature. And, and it's part of our nature to really divide and split it up and say, well, we're better in every area and they are so different. And I know I spent seven years really attacking, but for a purpose, you're gonna see it all come together as we move forward. Not much difference in Christianity and Mormonism in that way hierarchy and authority, church government, bureaucracy is bureaucracy. I mean, money line, follow the money is follow the money, budgets are budgets, men are men, piety is piety, jerks are jerks. There are always problems with keeping the buildings and things uh, in order. There's always problems with people not caring and, and destroying property. Uh, but let's take it down to the individual level. Generally speaking, Christians and Mormons all love their children they, they care deeply about them, they love their family. Christians and Mormons love their parents. Islam, they love their family, they love their children. Individually, not much different. Weddings, birth of babies, funerals, they bring tears appropriately to all generations, all cultures, all people. Deaths bring the same type, there's different ways to express it, but tears are usually always present in the same things. People are people, folks, life is life. The LDS try to love each other They try to love their neighbor, they try to love and support their bishop. Christians try to love their neighbor, try to support their pastor, we're trying. There are LDS people in congregations who are embarrassed by members in their church and there are people in the Christian church who are embarrassed by people in theirs. I'm one of them, I think. I embarrass the Christian people all the time. But in all these ways and manners, functionality, Mormonism, Christianity, very similar. Does anything really matter when it's all said and done? I mean, really, does does it matter? What is the point if all people are essentially the same and all organized churches pretty much have the same types of pluses and minuses? I mean, I can tell you right now, I can think in my mind of two people I know who are preparing themselves to go out into the Nevada desert and to live for a week in the dust with the most wild activity you can imagine human beings will participate in. And they are the most loving, kind, considerate people I know, truly. They're going out to this thing called Burning Man. So what is it? What is the difference between us all as we sit in the churches and some are out in the desert doing God knows what and some are piously condemning and others are lovingly helping. What is the difference? Humans are humans, religion is religion, jackasses are jackasses and people are people. Does anything truly separate us in the eyes of God? Jesus said, yep. He was standing before a group of some of the most religious men on earth and he told them If you don't believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, to die in your sin is one bad place to be. You either die in your sin or you die not in your sin. I guess if we were really gonna, in light of everything, this is the divider. This is what truly differentiates all cultures, all churches, all communities, all families, every single individual on earth. There are those, irrespective of outward appearance and appellation, who will die in their sin. And there are people who, in spite of outward appellation and outward appearance, will die pure. That is the difference between all this Stuff. Some will die in their sin and some will die clean. Proverbs 16, I was reading this morning. This is where I'm at in the Old Testament. There's several passages that I love. I'm gonna read them to you quickly before we go to the phones. Verse two says, all the ways of man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weigheth the spirits. The next verse, verse five, I think, is that the one? Yep, it says, everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Did you know that? If you're proud in your heart, doesn't even say anything about the outside of you. If you're proud in your heart, you're an abomination to the Lord. Though hand in hand, he shall not go unpunished. And then we have uh, verse 25. It says, there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That means dying in your sin. In the Mormon Christian debate, things start to get teased apart when we talk about gifts of the spirit, their culture, love for God, praise and worship, views of biblical reliability, Most of that stuff, if you really think about it, it's a non-event. There are Christians who are divided on King James only versus NIV, versus the Masoretic text, versus the uh, Westcott and Hort, versus the Revised, versus the, I mean, it's just endless. So we might be able to give a little leeway when it comes to the view of inerrancy on the Bible. I don't know if that has anything to do with whether you die in your sin or not. But there are things radically that depart and separate those who die in their sin and those who don't when it comes to Mormonism and Christianity. There's ideas on matter. There's soteriology, which is the way people say others are saved and don't die in their sin. There are plans of salvation. There are ideas on rebirth. There's the ontology or makeup of Christ and the ontology or makeup of God uh, between biblical Christianity and Mormon doctrine. In the weeks to come, we're gonna show that in spite of all the similarities that are really non-events, that even sometimes we have made events, they really don't mean anything. The real question is, in Mormonism versus Christianity, what are those things that would make the heart of either side be abominable before God? What doctrines do they embrace that make them proud, that make us proud? versus uh, others. That's what we're going to talk about. Let's open up the phone lines 80 phone lines 80159084138015908413 we have a winner, Alan in Colorado. We're gonna get you in a second, Alan. We have Anthony from Toronto, Canada, and we have Tom from R- Regina, Regina, Regina. Regina sounds better. Uh, Canada. Uh, they're all waiting, but while we're waiting, uh, and the operators are still taking your calls, let's take a minute and watch this. the think- on Heart of the Matter, my friend. Are you a winner? Alan? 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 Every Alan I know has a little problem with... (laughs) Just kidding. All right, uh, we're gonna go to Tony. I don't know where Alan went. Tony in Toronto, Canada. Tony, are you there? Yes, I am. Hey, you're on Heart of the Matter, my friend. Hey,
3: Sean, how are you?
0: I'm doing well, how are you?
3: I'm great. I just want to thank you for your show. Um, I was Mormon most of my life, and just this past December, I was born again. and I found Jesus.
0: Praise God! How did that happen?
3: I, you know, it's a funny story. I just read the Bible. Uh, it was amazing because I had not gone to the LDS Church for a while, and I, I was a student studying in college. And I, I made like like a deal with God. I said, God. If you help me with my exams, I'll be faithful and go back to church. So I got through my exams, I did well. And then in order to strengthen my LDS testimony, I read the Bible and it did the opposite.
0: (laughs) That is so beautiful. Hey, listen, Anthony, you're on the air. People will be watching these archives for years to come. What advice do you have? You sound young, you sound young, younger. What advice do you have for searching Latter-day Saints? who are trying to know if Mormonism is true, where God is, et cetera.
3: Oh yeah, I'm, I'm 22. I mean, I just found it in the Bible. You know, God's, all the answers are in the Bible. LDS claims to have all the answers, but if you just read the Bible, you find them all there. I mean, those people searching, you know, I mean, people, you know, being young, you shouldn't let some orcs some like church or organization tell you how, how to live and what to do. You know, and then if you can't live their life, they point fingers at you, make you feel like you're no good. You have to think logically. Would a God, would God make you make you do that? Would Jesus do that? You have to think about that and to focus on Jesus and not so much your your church that you attend, because it's Jesus that saves you and not your church. You know.
0: Great call, Anthony. Really appreciate. It. Anything else? Uh, yeah, I just you know, when I was
3: Mormon, I used to like hate you, Sean. I honestly hated you. You know. I was so, like, whenever I would see your videos on YouTube, I was scared to watch If I watched it for one second, I would turn it off. Don't know. He's put doubt into my head and all this. But, you know, I, you're you're really doing a great thing.
0: Thanks, my brother.
3: And, you know, Sean, you're, you're doing a great thing, and I thank you, and, and you you have changed my life. I watch videos all the time. You have changed my life, honestly. Glad so I, I, can, I thank
0: you. Glad I could play a part, my brother. So good to know a true brother. Thanks for calling, Anthony. No problem, Sean. Okay, God I bless. Bye-bye. Listen, there's a method to this and I know it doesn't reach the majority of the LDS and it turns off a lot of Christians, uh, but the method is we we want you to hate me. Um, We want you to feel these, because indifference is, is when nothing happens. If you're indifferent to my program where I sit here and I postulate on things, yes, and I look so nice and handsome, you're not gonna give a rat's rear end what's being said. So I get you to feel something. I can try to get you to love me, but that's really hard to do. So I get you to hate me. And I hear it all the time. I hated you, I hated you. But then it dri- it's an emotion that drives you. I know how emotions work. And it gets you to start looking. And so we praise God that he allows us to do this and that many of you are patient with us along the way. Uh, we're gonna go to Tom and we're gonna call Reg Canada. Tom, you're on Heart of the Matter
1: hi sean how are you
0: doing well how are you doing i'm doing
1: fine i'm 57 years old and when i was 16 i uh, found christ i was uh from a jewish family huh. and uh i didn't know anything about uh, uh uh christ or even about my own faith at the time and uh a fellow uh, introduced me to Jesus by teaching me from the Old Testament something I never knew, and that was Isaiah 53, mm. and and he walked through it with me, uh, verse by verse, and showed me the prophecy, and then he took me to the New Testament and showed me where it was fulfilled. And by the end of Isaiah 53, I'd, uh, I I I he led me in a prayer, and I gave. I invited Jesus into my heart. Wow. And I'll tell you the next day when I woke up, I woke up with brand new eyes. Wow. I could see I could see the world, you know. Wow. What it was. And uh over the years I, you know, was learning a little bit about Jesus and when I got to Vancouver, unfortunately, I contracted the uh, uh, the HIV virus and I've been fighting that now for like 23, 24 years. Wow. And uh in vancouver i was getting treatment and i ran into the mormons and <laughs> uh i didn't know what to quite make of them yet and uh i i had a little bit of a problem when they got to the garden of gethsemane and they were saying he suffered there for us i said well no he, he was he was praying uh but he was suffering i said how was he suffering he was praying so uh i didn't quite get to uh, find out what they were referring to and i got to uh, regina and uh after that and i ran into the mormons again invited them over and started asking them questions uh i by the way you remind me a lot of uh, uh another fellow who i've read up on and that's uh, walter martin he, he did a lot of good work on uh, the research of the mormons and uh, i read the book uh, the kingdom of the cults there and boy he taught me a lot and uh, you're teaching me a lot here too a lot more than he taught and, uh, and i really appreciate you for that but when i got here to regina i started asking them questions i said oh, where does this book come from that you re- 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 you're all you know reading from and i said oh well uh, our prophet uh, uh joseph smith uh uh found these golden plates and he you know he, he translated them and i said really um what are they about and he said well they're about the americas really i said you know i'm interested in archaeology and that uh, uh and i watch a lot of these shows on tv and and they, they they're finding a lot of the old places that were written of in the bible um have they found anything uh you know, uh, 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 that relates to the Book of Mormon. And he said, well, um, they looked at each other. They always have an older one and a younger one there with the, uh, missionaries and the older one to keep the younger one from hearing the truth, I guess. And, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, and I said, uh, have they found anything? And he said, well, no, but there's a lot of ruins in South America. And I said, yeah, there are, aren't there any of them related to the stories? And he said, no, okay. Um,
0: Hey Tom uh, I'm you know. sorry but we got we have a lot of callers waiting. I, I love okay. the information you're giving any final point on it
1: I just want to find out what is the what is the deal they're they're talking about with the Garden of Gethsemane I never got that. What were they trying to tell me about it
0: Well uh, essen- and- essentially the LDS they uh, Joseph restored the true church back to the earth according to his claims. And so everything that uh, Protestant Christianity, mostly what Catholicism was teaching and believing, he put a twist on it. So instead of the atonement being on the cross, uh, it was in the garden of Gethsemane because common criminals would die on crosses. That would not be a place for atonement. So therefore when he suffered in the garden as it were, uh, shedding great drops of blood as only Luke says, they say that was the shedding of blood for sin and that what that is really yeah and that's what differentiates them in terms of the place of atonement but there's about five or six really logical arguments you can use uh to refute that stance and it puts it to bed but that's where it comes from tom
1: okay by the way i ordered your shirts and uh i get a lot of comments especially the jesus period shirt
0: oh good praise god (laughs) really nice to meet you my friend praise the lord and i'll let you go All right, God bless, talk to you later. Bye-bye. bye. -bye. Uh, For our smirking audience, I would have you know that in some ways we are all from Regina. Now, listen, uh, (laughs) hey, I'm not on TV, they can't kick me off anymore. (laughs) (laughs) That is not bad, that's how God did it, you, you filthy animals. Now, listen, let's go to Nick in Goodland, Kansas. Nick, you're on Heart of the Matter.
4: Oh, awesome!
0: you're on the air, my friend. First time caller. God
4: bless you, Sean. I just want to thank you for everything you've done. Uh, It's just been awesome getting out of the church. Uh, I want to give a shout out to my daughter, Summer, who's going to be 18 next month. And she's uh, decided to be a Christian instead of a Smithian.
0: Awesome. (laughs)
4: Um, So uh, I just want to I have a question for you to help clarify i couldn't answer it very well for her but she wanted to know why um when you go to a mormon church there's no crosses there to remind you of jesus and what what he is you know he's been crucified for us he's died for our sins and what's the best way to explain that to her uh in the best possible way
0: well um the LDS, they view the cross in a lot of the way, same ways that Christians will. They know it is uh-huh. he did die on the cross. They know he suffered on the cross. But what they lack to understand is the metonymical uh, idea of the cross. That's a huge word. And what it means is what the cross represents. To them, it represents a like a knife that you would murder somebody with. And so the missionaries will say, Why would you, if someone killed your son, would you take a knife and, and, uh, with a knife, would you take a knife and put it around your neck and wear it? No. Would you hang it on your wall? No, it would be reprehensible to you. Because they only view the cross as a place of physical torment uh, that Jesus underwent at Roman hands. They miss the metonymical sense, which is that is the place where his blood was shed, he gave up his life, he died spiritually for the three hours that he hung there, and there was darkness upon the face of the land. And then he gave his life physically for the world. And so they missed that. And again, being the restored church, they said the cross is not going to be our symbol. We are going to put spires, and, and we're going to have a lot of our architecture and our ironwork in our churches point upward. You'll see a lot of arches that point upward and their spires, meaning the progress and the evolution, the spiritual evolution of men becoming gods. And so the cross is like anathema to them. And that's the best way I can say they don't understand the true spiritual meaning. The real important thing though, uh, Nick, is to let your daughter know and go through the New Testament there's about five or six main passages in the Pauline epistles and in Peter that talk about the shame of the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross, because it has such an important uh, symbolic meaning to our having eternal life. Does that help?
4: Yeah, that, that really does help, thank you. Um, yeah, I look up- I've got one more quick question. My, go, go ahead. Uh, my, my other older daughter, she's a Really into the church, you know. She's uh, the Mormon church, and she won't listen to a word I say about the truth. Um, but she's spending her time baptizing all my ancestors for the dead. And is there any way to go to the Mormon Church, to take those baptisms away from the dead? You know what I mean—to take them off the record.
0: Not.
4: Uh, I told her I don't want any of my ancestors baptized as a Mormon. Um, I don't know. It, is there
0: uh, any way No, I don't think so, Nick. Listen, it's only if you have the political pull of the entire Jewish community or the Catholic Church that can contact the Mormon church and say stop baptizing our people. Sometimes they respond to that, but individuals, they're going to say, "Listen, this is we can't control who gets baptized vicariously, so we're sorry if they don't want to receive it." I wouldn't let it bother you. It's a meaningless activity of busyness that they heap upon their people, like genealogy to keep them busy. I, I'm sh- I know why it bothers you, I truly do, but try not to let it because it's meaningless.
4: Okay, it's really awesome. Hey, thank you, Sean. Thank you so much for, for all your time and all the knowledge you've
0: given. It's all my pleasure, Nick, all my pleasure, and God bless you. Nice to meet a brother. Peace, thank you. Okay, bye-bye. We're gonna go to Aaron in Flagstaff, Arizona. Aaron in Flagstaff, how you doing? Doing great, how you doing, Sean? Looking good. Doing well. You have been working out? At the table.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I got a question for you tonight. Yeah. So we got the uh, Law of Moses, Old Testament. God basically tells all of the Israelites what they need to be doing. Creates this monolithic law that is, you know, pretty much impossible to keep. And throughout the Old Old Testament, the Old Testament, you got these guys trying over and over again and just failing, you know, time after time, failure, failure, failure. So then the New Testament comes along, you got Jesus Christ, who nails all that to the cross and gives Christians liberty in Christ. So now, you know, we have the freedom to follow God's laws and and try to be obedient to him. And, you know, knowing that we'll fail sometimes, but but having an assurance of his love and acceptance and forgiveness. So for me as a Christian, you know, I'm trying to figure out which of God's laws I should be keeping, you know, which, you know, what kind of things it is that are going to be pleasing to God's eye. And so we dig through the word and we see things like, you know, don't sleep with animals on one end of the spectrum all the way down to don't, you know, in some cases don't eat pork and and shrimp. You know, don't mix your, your different kinds of laws. you know, you've got all of these different laws and it seems to me that a lot of times, you know, some of these are supposed to be ethical. Maybe some of them are ritual laws, uh, but you know, how are we supposed to know as Christians, which ones are really pleasing to God's eye and that we're not just picking and choosing the ones that we want to follow.
0: Uh, well, let me give you my insights on that, Aaron, for whatever it's worth, people will differ. Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. He said, Upon this, all the law and the prophets hang upon love. So we don't have to have laws written in stone. We operate simply by what is the loving thing to do toward God and toward man. If you can forget about rules written in stone and remember a lot of the New Testament where the apostles trying to help assimilate. Jews who had come out from 1,500 years of being under the law into liberty in Christ and it being a very difficult transition. So a lot of the things they were dealing with was, we don't wanna upset everybody completely, let's just ease our way into this. And that's why you gotta read the word contextually and see what was really being said instead of taking it in this absolute literal form in every single passage, which is what people will say when it comes to like the creation account, you've gotta take it literally. If you don't take it literally, then you can just take any passage literally. And then I just go and show a bunch of passages and say, do you take this literally? And they'll say, well, no. Well, how come you didn't take Genesis uh, three literally? So what I'm saying is, long story short, if you go to 1 John chapter three, it says, whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Next verse. And this is his commandment. You ready? Yeah. That we should believe on the name of, of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. So there you have all the commandments right there. It's faith, and now that you have that faith on him, it's love, it's faith and love. You can gauge everything you say and do under those two things, faith and love. And with that as a model, it helps you get through and get rid of all the minutiae of, should I have this pork belly or, you know, whatever.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I totally get it. And that's what I was getting at, you know, earlier, the liberty in Christ. But, you know, being a Christian and and having a desire to show God love and things, like I do have a desire to figure out what it is that he wants. And and to love, you know, your fellow man, that's number one. And that's one of the things that I first started seeing coming out of the LDS Church was, Hey, wait a second they're given point one of one percent you know in charity that's not love right you know and you, so you yeah you, I mean that's that's the big one to tackle like love love your brother you hit that and it's like hey, hey what else can I do you know I, I love God so much I just want to please him and so that's that's one of the interesting things and we look around and we see you know a lot of aggressive Christians holding up signs that say you know God hates homosexuals and things like that and it's like well, you know, wait a minute, that's not love and it's certainly not, you know, it doesn't seem like the Christian walk. So I'm trying to figure out what it is that God loves and that's, you know, that can be tricky. So, you know, I appreciate your, uh, your advice there. Read the fruit of know, the
0: spirit. What the fruits of the spirit are, it's love and it should be a colon. Not a, not a comma as a, as a laundry list, but it's love, colon, and then all aspects of love, and then read the definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13. That By that, right now, you can walk your entire life free from the burden of law, and I know I'm probably not talking to you, Aaron, but I'm talking to the audience, free from the aspects of law. If it's, if it's loving for you to sit down and have a beer with your friends, have the beer. If you're, not under, uh, if you're not under something, there's no law for that. If you wanna have a big fat pork sandwich, have it. If you wanna wear something that's revealing to a beautiful dance with your, with your spouse or whatever, wear it. There is, look, we can bog ourselves down endlessly with ways that we are going to please God, but he did it. He sent his son to please him. His son did it. We look to the son in faith, we love in return. Jesus' first miracle turned water into alcoholic wine. Now this is not a commercial for drinking alcohol. I, I I don't really, I think it does a lot of damage to tell you the truth. But I'm using it just as the liberty that is in Christ because he took care of everything. We don't need to have begun in our spirit to now become perfected in our flesh. It's a lie of religion. Sorry for the rant, Aaron. No, it's cool, man, it's cool. It's really good stuff.
2: I totally agree with you. For me, I just wanna please God, you know, and try to figure out what's, what that means and how I can best do it. It's always
0: a challenge. Well, if you ever find yourself thinking you're pleasing God, but lacking in love toward a neighbor, a family member, a friend, uh, then you gotta reassess.
2: Got it. All All right, right. my bye -bye. Thanks thanks so much, and thanks for your ministry.
0: Hey, thank you, Aaron. God bless. You too, bye. Bye bye. Bye-bye. I have an article here from the Christian Post. Why do Mormons do better youth ministry than we do? It says, let's face it, most of us look at the clean cut Mormon missionaries that peddle our streets of our city and knock on doors of our houses as somewhat out of date. We think think to ourselves how behind the times, we reflect on how grateful we are that we have the truth once and for all delivered to the saints. We may even think how much more superior our youth ministry strategies are compared to theirs. And then it says, or are they? It says Mormons expect a lot of their teenagers, we don't. I know these are generalizations. Mormons ordain their young men to the ministry at the age of 12, we don't. Mormons require their teens to attend seminary every day of high school, we don't. Mormons ask for two years in the field of every graduating senior, we don't. Maybe that's why we don't meet a lot of ex-Mormons. While there are hundreds of thousands of former church attendees in the true church of Jesus Christ who flee the church after graduating from high school. When many of our teens graduate from high school, they grab their books and a beer and go off to college. When Mormon teens graduate from high school, they grab a backpack and a bike pump and go off on a mission. Uh, And then he says, they know what they believe and why they believe it. They've hammered out their theology on our doorsteps. Their souls and minds have been steeled steeled, and sealed into Mormon orthodoxy through their fanatical commitment to the accomplishment of their version of the great commission. Meanwhile, we compress most of our missionary work into one week mission trip to Mexico. I'm sorry, but I think he's right. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I mean, there's a cost for the structure of the way the LDS view their youth, but there's also some benefits to it. I mean, they throw everything upon their youth because their youth is their future. So they have their cultural hall activities, the adult, the most charismatic fun leaders in their ward are sent to work with the youth. And they spend a lot of time with their youth. And I think we fail in that in the Christian church. In fact, campus, the church that we do, we fail miserably, miserably. We should be stripped bare and beaten for the, what we do with our youth if we don't do anything. We don't have that many youth, but we need to do something. And we can always improve. We do have one, Micah. And he's a reprobate, so no, just kidding. Uh, and, and, of course, we have... Um, uh, no. So, so listen, there's always room for improvement. We can learn from the LDS. We can improve on the way, because we do have the biblical truth. They do have a very messed up theology. But nevertheless, they do some things that are right. We'll be talking about those as we continue on. Really quickly. Oh, had such a great email. Uh, I can't get to it tonight, because we're out of time. Um, this is, I'm curious about Glenn Beck. He seems to be doing a lot of damage in what he, and how he somehow portrays Mormonism as mainstream and palatable to the American public, first on Fox and now on the internet. To me, this is dangerous and misleading. Uh, have you talked about Beck? We've talked about Glenn Beck quite a bit about the normalization of Mormonism through Beck. Uh, he's kind of the John the Baptist of the whole Mormon being Christian, Republican, conservative uh, thing. Uh, Beck is a very smart guy in terms of history, Uh, but I I think the man is, uh, uh, he's either extremely gullible uh, and subject to great bouts of emotionalism. He was an alcoholic at one time. He found the Mormon church. It gave him some hope and helped him overcome alcoholism. So maybe he can't see beyond that and he's extremely gullible to the whole story or the guy's a complete deceptive liar and he knows the facts. He really knows his history about other things and he just lies through his teeth to promote Mormonism and their agenda. I don't know, I, I, can't, I can't tell. But uh, uh, So that's all I have on, on, on Beck and what he is doing. Aaron Stressamon says, uh, when we understand the end of the old covenant and the beginning of the new covenant, we find that no one has ever been saved by saying a prayer. Well, I'm not sure that's true. I'm sure there have been people who have uttered prayers and they, and God has sent his Holy Spirit and saved them. So I think that's a generalization there, Aaron. We are told to follow the plan of salvation just as Saul of Tarsus did. Well, that's a big mistake because Saul of Tarsus was a Jew of Jews and he had a responsibility under the law. And so when Paul of Sar- Paul of Saul of Tarsus, uh, he uh, came to know truth He had a process to go through, which all Jews did. They repented for not recognizing the Messiah who they had been informed of. And then he went and he was baptized and did all those things. You are trying to take those same, repent, confess, be baptized, and walk in newness of life and apply it to every Christian. Pagan countries, pagans, the people out in the Congo, the people here in, in, in Utah, we had no commitment to God. We have no law. So we were completely free from the need to repent. You will never see Paul say repent in all of his teachings to Gentiles. What does he say? Believe, believe, believe because the repentance part has to come with the law and pagans, Gentiles, had no law. So you gotta be really careful when we start crossing lines like that. A lot of really good emails. We've got a guy who says, I have brought him right to the foundations of atheism through the program he has watched. And we'll try to cover that next week when we open up uh, the show. We love ya. Tell your friends about Heart of the Matter. We appreciate it. And we'll see you next week here on the show.